0: Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics, and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh, I'm your host. On today's episode, I talk with my friend Abigail Benjamin. Abigail is a lay Carmelite, a Catholic wife of 20 years, and a homeschooling mom to seven kids ages 17 to 2. Abigail is an environmental and real estate lawyer in her small hometown in central West Virginia. This year, she ran for public office for the first time. Abigail is working on her first novel, Thin Lines, as part of a Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at West Virginia Wesleyan College. She graduated with honors from Smith College and the University of Wisconsin Law School. In this conversation, Abigail and I will be talking about her first venture into electoral politics, and we'll be reflecting on the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as well as what her death means for our political and civic future. This conversation was recorded on September 22nd. All right. Hello, Abigail. Hello,
1: Julie. Thank you.
0: I'm so glad you could be here today. We haven't seen each other in a long time. But we yes. know each other through through writing, through blogging, and I will say that Abigail is just some one of those people that you meet and you connect with, and you really enjoy. We've talked on the phone a few times, and I'm so glad to get to talk to you today. Oh, thank you, thanks,
1: Julie, thank you.
0: Also, I will say that Abigail is somebody I really look up to because she has a bunch of kids and takes on really big and important things and. I think is just so inspiring to those of us who are home with kids and, and we can sort of look to her and see what, she's, see what she's done and think, well, maybe I can do something like that too. So I really oh, appreciate great. it. <laughs> um, now, we are talking today, a few days after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And um, Abigail, I was wondering if you could tell us about your reaction to the news of her death, especially as a woman and an, and an attorney.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, So, Julie, to your listeners, I just want to give my uh, brief introduction. Um, Yes, absolutely. I am almost forty five, and I have seven kids. My oldest is seventeen, and my youngest is two. Um, I am an adult convert to the faith. I married um, a guy that had a strong spirituality, but was sort of you know what we would call a lapsed Catholic. And um, I converted to the church a year after we got married. At twenty seven, um, took the the church's teaching about birth control to heart, and we had a baby. Um, actually, actually, really inspired by nine um, eleven. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. On September eleventh, I was. I had been a newlywed. Um, I'd gotten married in, in June, so I'd been a newlywed for just three months. And my husband was army reserve, um, wasn't currently active, but we really thought he could get called up. And that was my first push that, um, you know, life might not go according to my little plan. Um, and that the church is teaching about birth control, which I, I kind of come in. I mean, I really sort of embraced that, um, mystically. And so we now have, um, seven kids and, um, I worked for four years um, as an attorney um, for legal services. So I I worked for the poor in a rural area of Appalachia, the Ohio part of Appalachia. And then I felt, Called to, to be home. I I really, if, if you had interviewed me 10 years ago when we first met, I would have been like, I know, you know, I know God's plans for me and I'm supposed to be home and homeschooling my kids, and I'm so grateful that um, you know, I took the path away from Ruth Bader-Ginsburg, right? That I I was putting my um my my faith first. And, you know, for me just personally, I had a lot of um. Um, emotional intergenerational trauma I was I you know Jesus and I were trying to clear up so I was trying to be you know a more <laughs> healthy person and improve that improve <laughs> that uh, family uh, history to pass on um but I became a Carmelite and I made my uh, profess vows and I think if, if you've seen my life really uh, shift in the past four years it's because this prayer life that I started as a mom and as somebody that sort of stepped out of my plan when I was in college and law school and, you know, first idolized Ruth Bader Ginsburg and sort of, you know, came into a more gentler, um, mystical understanding of our faith, um, it, it came back at, at full force. And um, I read the Pope's encyclical. And I had a little tiny baby. He was one. So I had six kids and and my youngest was one. And I felt this really strong urge to go back and retake um, a bar exam for a new state. That's my native state of West Virginia. Um, Open up a practice for environmental law, even though I was completely overwhelmed and I had no idea how this was going to work out. Um, Wow. Yeah. So now I'm four years in and the law practice is going really well and I'm still homeschooling uh, my kids and we were just <laughs> we were just talking about the that homeschooling thing even uh with my yeah. experience during the pandemic is crazy. Um and then I'm adding on to that uh, another um interest which is um my work in the MFA and, and I'm I'm a year into um, writing literary fiction. So yeah, my master I, of
0: fine arts is that master what, of fine that's arts, what asking, right? exactly. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I right. um I love Flannery O'Connor um and I'm actually right now doing a um really deep critical analysis of, uh, Walker, um, Percy, who was a Catholic writer from Louisiana, but I was at my law firm when she died, um, working late because I'm, I'm trying to fit in work in, in, in the midst of, um, you know, being a spouse of an academic who's, who's really stressed during remote learning and, um, you know, trying to trying to mother my kids um during this crazy September. So I was working late and I came home at um like eight thirty. Um and I felt like I just, you know, it was a day that I felt like I killed it, right? Like I, I was I was mm-hmm. together. <laughs> rare. <laughs> that was a rare moment. And I, <laughs> I have that kind of day once it. in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I looked at the internet and um It just was so, I was so sad she died. Like, just, it was Mm -hmm. really personal. Um, And one of the things that kind of shocked me was that my sadness was really different from my husband, you know, who, who, yeah, I mean, he was trying to be supportive, but like, it was definitely, I was losing somebody in the legal profession who, um, I've never met and I may have disagreed with, um, actually, and curiously, not so much even politics. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very, um, at least from her quotes and stuff, she was kind of against, um, she being a lady. She, she's that great quote. Like if you're going to disagree with people, you know, do, do in a way that's, uh, what did she say like that gets people to follow you. I mean, she's very gentle and cerebral mm-hmm. and that is mm-hmm. not, my milieu at all. I'm, I'm very passionate <laughs> and emotional and like, you know, I, I go and have lawsuits to sue people cause I'm, I'm, you know, mad about climate change and stuff. And so that was uncomfortable. Like, I mean, um, but I just, I don't know. Yeah. So it was just, it was just deeply, deeply sad. Um, and I kind of like, didn't, um, I didn't know what to do with all that sadness. Um, huh. And so one thing for me, I, I'm a history major and, and kind of like a nerd. So re-watching, like, I think I watched the documentary again, Notorious um, RGB and things like that, like finding more about her um, in an organized way, that that really, that helped my grief. But um, I, another thing that happened, um, which I think you saw a picture on Facebook, was um, there uh, there was a, a call um, to have a vigil on um in the courthouse that it was the it was um the Saturday so she died on friday, so this mm-hmm, was this mm-hmm. was saturday and um you know another lawyer um in in our town kind of put that up, and I was just wrote in, I was like yeah you know i'll, I'll be there and um and then she wrote back and said, "You know, we we didn't have permission. The the county wasn't going to give us permission." And I had this oh, very God. like I know very aggressive, you know, um, being a lawyer and someone that knows about you know a right our right to freedom of assemble. I'm like, they can't stop you from standing on a public sidewalk like that doesn't need to have a permit, you know. And so I took like that was my act of rebellion. And I took my four daughters. Um, so yeah, I have four daughters and, and three sons. I took my four daughters. Um, and um, my husband and and my parents, who ironically were not uh, supportive of me going to law school, um, and we all went and had yeah. this um, candlelight vigil um, alone on this tiny street. I, I live in a, a town of um, 5,000 in the middle of um, central West Virginia. And that, you know, again, I think um, these these issues of uh, memorial and death, and and I'm very sensitive that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, was Jewish, so it's 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 different from our um, Catholic traditions. But I still think that issue of of mourning and and remembrance, I, I I think that's that's healing. And um, yeah. So right,
0: yeah. Well, that's neat to have been there with so much of your family and. Even if everybody wasn't necessarily even on the same page, but you still were together and mourning and marking the passing of an important life. That's interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, I did not have a huge, um, like, emotional, personal reaction to her death. I did not feel um, particularly attached to her. And I felt like afterward, everyone on my Facebook feed was attached in one way or another. I mean, most were attached to her in the idea of a sort of a hero. Some were attached to her as in the idea of almost like a villain. (laughs) It's Mm. like, well, I am in neither of those places. Um, I, I just felt, um, you know, this, the sadness that you feel when you hear of a death and I felt badly for her family and colleagues and friends and for the people who cared so much about her. Um, I prayed for her. I sort of had my usual, usual reaction, um, but I didn't have so much of a personal reaction. And on the one hand, um, I felt a little left out because there was such like intense mourning or unfortunately some scorn too going on. Um, but on the other hand, it was kind of an interesting opportunity for me to learn more about her. Mm. Um I had a sense of who she was. My impression impression was that she was incredibly smart, incredibly talented, um, and um, that she, um, you know, I I had a lot of respect for what I knew about her, her marriage, for her friendship with um, Justice Scalia. Um, So I, I had some things I, you know, respected her for, but I didn't really have much depth to it. So it's been really interesting to me over the last few days to listen to podcasts and read articles and just learn more about her. And I had not understood how instrumental she was in pursuing cases Mm -hmm. um, regarding like workplace discrimination, that kind of thing. I mean, I thought of her in terms of a justice. I didn't really think of her so much as like a lawyer, you know? Mm -hmm. So that it's been interesting for me over the past few days to learn, um, to learn about her. Um, So at any rate, you know, when I was seeing people who seemed, like I said, particularly attached in one way or another, it it almost, it bothered me a little bit. The, the, the adoration didn't bother me so much because when a beloved figure dies, people are going to share a lot of things, and I totally get it. I totally get where people are coming from. It did bother me to see how some people on the right were being even sort of in there, they would say, oh, we're praying for her, but it was a snarky way of saying it, you know, it was sort of a a diminishing of her and a targeting of her that I thought was really inappropriate for, you know, the immediate hours after her death. And I just thought we have such away these days of making people into like two-dimensional figures, you know, like to make them into some sort of placard that represents something that we hold dear. And I really feel like that's what was happening to her in the wake of her death. You know, she mm-hmm. was either hero or villain. And I just thought people are complicated. <laughs> you know, like this woman has a really interesting multi-layered story. And um, I think even if you disagree with her on something as important as for instance, abortion. Um, there's so much more to her life. And I think that, um, we as, as people, but as citizens, you know, have a responsibility to realize that our public officials are real three-dimensional people full of depth. And maybe we should take that opportunity to learn a little bit more and to sit with the information that we've learned and, um, try to let that inform us going forward instead of just sort of discounting somebody. So that's sort of where I was. And I just was trying to take the opportunity to learn a little bit more. Um, but more than anything, I I was just really struck with the importance of this moment. I mean, for people who don't pay much attention to politics, I mean, let me assure you that the vacancy of this Supreme Court's seat at this point Um, in our history, is a really big deal. This is a really big deal. And it has so much potential to cause trouble. Um, So regardless of my position on any issue that might come up in front of the court, I think it is really bad for our country to have an open Supreme Court seat at a time where our country is as divided as it is And in a situation, in the particular situation that we're in. So part of the problem (laughs) is that in the last year of the Obama presidency, when Justice Scalia's seat came up, um, President Obama nominated someone for the seat. He tried to nominate uh, someone who would be centrist enough for the Republicans to approve, approve him. And the Republicans decided that because it was an election year, they would not approve the filling of the seat. So they left it open so that um, when the new president was chosen, that is President Trump, he was able to fill it. So they set this precedent that in an election year, you don't fill a Supreme Court seat. So of course now, a lot of people don't don't want them to fill Ginsburg seat, and of course, the Republicans are going to do it anyway. So it just set up this really difficult situation. And um, And it just to me, it's like it was already going to be difficult, because here you have this icon of the left who has died, and her seat is open. That's already difficult. And then you have the difficulty of the precedent in the Merrick Garland case, so that adds to the difficulty. Um, and then I have more, but do you have anything else <laughs> that you wanted to say before I proceed?
1: Yeah, well, I, um, I, I want to talk about the vacancy, um, but before we start to leave the, the, the personal legacy, yeah. I just, I wanted yeah, to share yeah, yeah. some, um, some thoughts. Um, so one of the things that I really like about Rick Bader Ginsburg is, um, I really can't think of another feminist icon that was so smart and so um you know so 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 calmly persistent um with gender inequality um that also really valued her motherhood and um and marriage um. Mm-hmm. So she, mm-hmm. um, you know, she married her college sweetheart. It was really, you know, he, he was the one person who she said cared that she had a brain. Um, mm-hmm. She started Harvard Law School um, as one of nine women in 1950 with a 14 year old child. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry excuse me, 14 month old, 14 month old child.
0: Right. And, um, right. as,
1: and then proceeded to become graduate on the top, uh, score on the top 25 of Harvard law school. So she could be the, like, one, I think the first woman on the Harvard law review. And it's just like, that isn't enough. Again, I, I did law school, uh, from ages 22 to 25 without a husband or a child. Um, her husband got cancer, um, his last year, he was a year ahead of her. And like, I mean, this, this woman is just amazing. I mean, she organized his friends. Um, he, he, back then they, you know, so we're, I don't know where we are, like 1952, 1953, the cancer treatments are brutal. Um, and he would get radiation treatment and be too sick to study or go to class. And so his friends would bring in their notes. She would type, she would go to her class. She would take care of the baby and wash the dishes. And then she would type up his notes for a year ahead of her in law school. So, And he ended up graduating magna cum laude um, because of her right. efforts. And then she right. gave up finishing Harvard and, and followed him, um, you know, because he was, Still in recovery, she didn't want to send him alone to go get his first law job in New York, and so she switched, and that's why she graduated from Columbia. And so, um, and she has talked about that her success in school is because she had Jane, her um, oldest daughter, um, and you know she said that having that balance—you know, when she was at school, she was studying, and 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 when she was with her daughter, she was with her daughter, and having those two pieces are the respite. Um, you know, for each other, they reinforce each other. And I I don't, I mean, I just, I can't think of another person um, that describes that so clearly. I mean, I often feel like, as a woman that's in a profession of the law and also a, a, a mom of um, seven, like there's one identity that gets affirmed, right? Like when I'm at church, I, like literally people are shocked if I hand them my business card um, that I'm an attorney, <laughs> Like, you know, like I was, I was at the Catholic school and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like I work too, you know? Um, and then, and then like, you know, it's usually a good, uh, a good laughter with my clients because I don't usually present very much that I have seven kids, but it's been such a joy in West Virginia because, because um, people are like, oh, my gosh, you know, that like that's a that's a real positive where, you know, I'm definitely worried if I was on a right. firm in the city, I'd be, you know, hiding <laughs> that. Um, which which comes around uh, one of the holes that uh, Trump Trump might put in Amy. Um, Coney Barrett. Yeah. Is the mother of seven. Yes. Yeah, so but yeah. um, so. So uh, another thing, I'm um, speaking on a turn with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but her son, Mm. um, so she has two children, her son disclosed that um, they worried that his dad had um, infertility as a result of the cancer treatments. And so he was this beautiful um, surprise and they were so happy. And Ruth
0: graduated
1: with this awesome resume. I mean, it's like inconceivable how she did that. And she could not get a job. Like no, even like Marty, her husband's friends, like went to bat for her. They were like, this woman's brilliant. And nobody would hire her. She was a mother. She was a Jew and she was a woman. And they were just like, no. And so she actually got a job writing about Swedish civil procedure. She went to Sweden and like, that was the first job she got. So, um, when she's teaching, I heard she even learned Swedish for it. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm such a nerd. That was one of my like comfort things was I'm like, I think I might order that book and, and read it. Like, just so I feel like, Oh, this was hers. Cause you know, um, hearing about these heroes. You think that their life is all together. So yeah, I was like reading about Swedish civil procedure kind of made me feel, feel calm about uh, starting on the bottom. Um, <laughs> but uh, Oh, so, so you know, Grappling with her, um, I think. I think the complicated le- legacy as as a Catholic. I think it's important to really appreciate. Um, how somebody overcame barriers, how they, you know, how, you know, the, the, so she, she, first, she got a job at Rutgers. She hid her pregnancy as she wore baggy clothes as, again, this is the, her second child. She hid the pregnancy, um, until she got a contract in hand. I mean, it's just, it's all, it's all things that we still, unfortunately, can, can relate to, um, um, and then her husband just became such a champion of her um you know of her career and and she got this great um she and Scalia where it started to be friends on the bench um they and and you know her husband gave up New York City where they were both born and and bred and moved to washington d c and so again, when I look at somebody who it, it's easy to see I think heroes that I admire professionally, but I usually don't see the family life, you know, for me feeling like that's a model. And for her, um, it just, it just feels great for me to have like, you know, to be excited oh, yeah. about about a well-rounded person. And, um, I, I did also want to say too, I, I think we're talking a lot about her, um, Wonderful friendship with Scalia, which they were opposite. So anyone doesn't know, I mean, they are the opposite. You know, the the Catholic uh, guy and the and the Jewish woman, and they disagreed on everything. And um, and she said she wanted to uh, wring Scalia's neck sometimes. On the, and I'm sh- but they had this friendship that went outside the court. It was. They both loved opera and I, I don't know, they just really have this, this picture if you guys want to search on the internet of them on an elephant together in India. Um, and so I think, and and I wanted to share too, cause I didn't really understand until I, I did my history dig this week. Um, she was also really good friends with Sandra Day O'Connor who was the first woman mm. on the court. And also Sandra Day O'Connor was the opposite from her. She was a rancher from Arizona, a Republican. Um, and they had a very interesting, um, Mentorship. And, and so if there's one thing I hope we take away from this podcast, it's even the justices who are on the front line of ideological divides and 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 and, and, and deciding stuff in five-four fashion, and they are still able to respect each other and see each other as full human beings. And I hope moving forward. I, I That's, that's the piece. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the law in politics, but I just hope after this election, we can see, see, each, again, I think you tried to talk about that, see each other as multifaceted people and, 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 and be able to extend uh, respect and friendship and love to people that ideal, ideologically and, and faith-wise we, we might be opposed.
0: Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think, that the Scalia-Ginsburg friendship is a great example to us right now in this mm-hmm. divided state that we're in. I mean, we have so many people who, even within families and close friendships, people are are coming down on different sides of our political divide, and they're letting it destroy their relationships. And I think that they're a great example to us of the importance of kind of being people first, you know? Right. And... Um, and putting our human relationships ahead of our philosophical leanings. And, um, you know, we've got to recognize the value of each other and the value of our relationships. If we're going to go anywhere good as a society. <laughs> so,
1: And I, I think again, the, 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 um, Scalia Ginsburg, um, uh, friendship, that's, I'm going to try to make a, a meme for that <laughs> moving forward. But, um, <laughs> What I see is there's like one political party that's all about truth, right? There's these absolute truths and we're not going to change. And then there's another party that's about, you know, relationships and inclusion and 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 seeing things beyond yourself. And again, somehow we're going to – we need to do both, right? You need to mm-hmm. hold on right. to the truth. You need to stand up for, you know, just like those Ginsburg dissents, you need to stand up for what you believe, even if it's not popular. Um, but again, there's, you don't, you don't ever do that in isolation. And I, and I think the Supreme court as those nine justices, I think they are hopefully a model for us. Um, so then let's, let's, let's go back to your, now the, the personal to the political. Um, I just want to share, so uh, on On one of my many hats um I teach every two years i i i'm an adjunct um professor for um environmental law at, at my local um christian college um west virginia westland and in my a, in a, in a, in a very small town of buchanan and it is really interesting so i i teach environmental um science uh, majors and I come in and i try to get them excited about politics and they look at me like i 'm crazy and um it's good. It's good. I, I like forcing public speaking. and it's 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 uh, it, it's fun, and and they in turn, uh, I, I think make me a, a far far better um, mother of uh, teenagers. Um, but they, um, they we did a survey, um, and they talked about out of the three branches of government, Congress, the presidency, executive. So we have the um, legislative branch, the executive branch, and then the judicial branch, Supreme Court, and. Everybody in my class, I mean, I think it, out of my class of 30, I think it got more than 26 votes, um, said that the Supreme Court was the most um, influential, most neutral, you know, this this body that really is, is insulated from the democratic process, um, is seen as sort of these pure guardians of liberty. And... Um, I don't know. I'm a little conflicted because as a lawyer, I mean, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was going
0: to say that's refreshing. I was going to say that's refreshing to hear because that's what it's supposed to be. But increasingly people are seeing it as political. Yeah. I was going to say that, um, in my mind, the major difficulty that we're in, in our society is in our, in our political culture is that of our three branches, two of them, at least, aren't quite doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a legislative branch that increasingly will not legislate. Mm-hmm. They won't um, They won't take on big controver- controversial issues because they're afraid of the electoral repercussions for their members. Mm-hmm. So they don't want people to have to take hard votes so they don't put the hard votes up so things don't get decided. And so they kick everything to the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, so a legislative branch that won't legislate an executive branch that is becoming stronger um, and is reaching, sort of grabbing its own power in part as a reaction to a legislative branch that won't legislate. And then you have a judicial branch that is meant to sort of um, decide between the two. And increasingly things are sent to them because they're not being sort of decided by the legislature, you know, um, so at any rate, you have um, sort of a dysfunctional situation going on here to begin with. And I think that the court has tried um, mightily to prioritize, especially under John Roberts, their like institutional integrity. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're trying to independence. Right, they're trying to maintain their independence, um, and I think increasingly partisans don't want them to do that. You know, right. I mean, it's it used to be it's hard for us to remember this now, but it used to be that when Supreme Court nominees were made and they were voted on in Congress, they received almost unanimous approval.
1: I re- yeah, uh, I remember that. Yeah, that was yeah. that was seen as really I mean, important. It yeah, that it wasn't should've... right.
0: It wasn't even that long ago. They mm-hmm. they was it was not meant to be a political appointment. Mm -hmm. And so you were not meant to treat it politically. You know, you really were only supposed to weigh in on whether someone was qualified Mm -hmm. um, and fit for the office, not whether you thought you were going to agree with their decisions. Mm -hmm. And now it's not how we think of it at all. Now it's down to a partisan line. And we're assuming that only the people of a particular political party are going to vote for the candidate. And, um, it really gets us into a dangerous place where Americans view the court as partisan as opposed to independent. So, you know, it was refreshing to me to hear that your students say that, but I think increasingly the danger is that people won't see it as independent. And that's one of the concerns I have about this moment is that as much as I might personally as a conservative prefer to have um, a great majority on the court that is conservative I am concerned about what this means for our country because if the, Mm -hmm. if the court is seen as political
1: and illegitimate. Yeah. Right. It could be seen as illegitimate. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing I, I, so I've got, I've got kind of two, um, two thoughts back uh, again, using history. Um, So the, the positive part is this, this issue of the court This is not the first time. Actually, there's there's two other dramatic times the Supreme Court has been tested like this. The very first time is Marbury versus Madison. That was when um, they carved off this um, independent rule in the first place. Um, You know, it's it is really shocking. In the Mm. in the Constitution, Um, the Supreme Court actually has very little text. I mean, it's like half a page. Everyone else gets all these longer places. So. Hmm. That first fight in our kind of framers constitution, the court, um, survived and, and, and became something that was, um, independent. Um, and then also under, um, FDR, there, the, the court was, was seen as conservative. They were striking down this New Deal legislation as, you know, a, a beyond the reach of the executive branch. And FDR, like, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, he, he threatened to add justices, you know, to get his legislation passed. And right. um, he backed down. So, anyways, just, just so we're in, um, we're, we're situated in history, um, th- th- this is not the first time this has come up. Um, and, um, and then the second thing I wanted to, to talk to, because it, it has been surprising to me, um, I was really worried about. Um, Neil Gorsch, his mom was um, someone that was pretty conservative in terms of environmental protection legislation. And I mean, I just I was like, man, this is like, you know, for me and and worried about the environment and climate change and our our 10 year window. Um, There were some decisions that came down this summer, um, there was a case in Hawaii that I, I did not predict. I mean, I a hundred percent got it wrong. I was in the chalkboard talking about how Neil would vote to my class and, um, and then the decision came <laughs> down. And, um, so the cool thing, and I, I, I would just encourage us Catholics to think about Beckett, um, Thomas Beckett back in England, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. however much people want to simplify, um, down to positions, right? And there's this idea that you know uh, Ginsburg was a hero or a villain. Um, I think there is, hopefully, um, when a justice is confirmed, just like with Beckett, um, you know, he be, he became um, a head of the Church of England, and and there's sort of this um, institutional majesty. And again, it's it's weird to sort of put your hope on that, but I I think. Roberts, as Chief Justice, has really matured. Um, I'm I, I, so hopefully we as Americans um, and and the justice themselves, whoever is confirmed, um, can can think of their place in in a, again in a line of justices. Um, again, which which I hope as a woman and and I hope more minorities are on the court. I I think it's I think who you are is it a part of, of justice. Um, but, but I, 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 do see a tradition. Um, so I, I just wanted to kind of, kind of give that, that hope that, um, as much as people want to reduce it down to, um, party politics, there, there's, there's a tradition, um, in the Supreme Court of, of really looking at the facts of a case. And, and that is one thing I did just want to talk about, um, the the judges really are not supposed to be going in with policy. Now we, we know people are human beings and, and they have their own mm-hmm. positions and probably unconscious bias or whatever, but you really are supposed to look at the facts at individual um, situations. And so I think sometimes in our I think sometimes we get stuck in a little bit in fifth grade, you know, we're trying to just oh, you know, I I'm for abortion, I'm against it, I'm this. And and really when by the time a case comes up to the Supreme Court, it it's it's generally complicated. Um, you know, it's it's generally um nuanced. And so mm-hmm. yeah, but but it it would be interesting to think about how do we as a society talk about Judges and justice and the courts, and um yeah yeah, right, how what what is legitimacy,
0: right, yeah, I think for the most part, the justices are you know they're obviously very aware of the importance of their institution, and it's in their best interest to be as impartial and measured as possible and to um uphold the independence of their institution um the the problem is how we as regular people interpret right. it you know <laughs> and um so i think i think if trump is able to nominate and get confirmed a justice i think no matter what a huge portion of the country is just going to th- think that the situation was inherently unfair and that the court is um is inherently biased. I, people are going to think that. Now, what will be interesting is to see how the court starts to decide things. And um, you know Gorsuch, for example, surprised a lot of people this year. And um, you know you could have a similar situation in the future. If court cases are seen to be more fair than people expected, then we might avert a um, a crisis. But i don't know i just um i'm um I'm concerned about a situation where one side just keeps upping the ante you know so like the uh, the Republican side takes essentially uh three quarters of the court and then the democratic side decides, oh, we need more than nine members of the court right. and then it goes, right. you know it you know sort That's of that court packing so.
1: policy from f d r yeah. right
0: yeah exactly, so we'll see what happens i'm I'm nervous, but I'm nervous about any, everything these days. Mm-hmm.
1: So, <laughs> yeah. Well, how so. are you, um, how are you coping with this nervousness? Because I think, um, on, on top of the, you know, pandemic where it's just, it's, we're at the six month mark, which is just so hard for me to, to kind of comprehend and, and yeah, the upcoming election. So yeah. How are you, how are you feeling about this upcoming election? How are, how are you coping with the the stress of the unknown? Um, the way
0: I'm coping, honestly, is through this podcast. <laughs> oh, great. great. So, yeah, I just, I've, I honestly feel like, um, I feel like we have gone through some hard times here in the US. I think we are in for some harder times. I think, mm-hmm. I think we have a sort of bleak, immediate future. Um, but there's nothing I can do about that. Mm-hmm. What the only thing I can do is, um, is impact what's right in front of me. And to use my own abilities and my own interests um, and my own passions to try to make something of of a difference. So that's where I am. You know, that's how I'm coping is to say, well, I can't change what's going on at the Supreme Court or Congress or Presidency. I can't change that. But what I can do is talk to people and um, try to have good conversations that... I find interesting that others might find interesting. I can pray. I can be kind to the people around me. I can talk to my kids about politics and try to help them understand the world that they're growing into. Um, So that's how I'm coping is I'm just looking to see what I can do and I'm trying to do that.
1: I love that. I love that, Julie. That's um, The little flower is a carmelite and... um... One of the things I, I learned at a meeting was she she talked about um the, like the power of thirty like all of us have a sphere of about thirty people that we deeply impact um and that seems pretty consistent for me with my family um but I switch out you know sometimes I have um you know a client I've I've been talking to um a lot and 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 you know um sometimes I'm, I'm in another project, but, um, yeah, I really try to be intentional, um, and, and deep and authentic with that, with that power of 30. Um, so it's, it's, it's a small circle, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, really powerful. I mean, when you think of, um, the little flower, Teresa, she, she only had 30 people, um, that she really influenced in her life and all of us kind of only have 30 people, but that 30 people, you know, that, 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 that depth is really powerful.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I, I had never heard that phrase before. That's interesting. Um, yeah, it's like, um, it's, it's, you know, it's funny when I think about the situation, I think, oh goodness, what's going to happen with the Supreme court, mm-hmm. what's going to happen with the Senate, because mm-hmm. this Supreme court vacancy is not only affecting the court itself, it could affect the presidential election. Yes. It could affect the, the, the balance of power in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, it could potentially impact the presidential election. Also, if there is some question about the election that arises in the courts,
1: right?
0: Um, <laughs> um, we already talked about court packing, um, the court's reputation. So there's so many. This is this is such a monumental mm-hmm. situation here, and it, it it could potentially have an effect on so many levels. It feels so huge, mm-hmm. um, and so it's it's so easy to get overwhelmed. I mean, yeah. when you think about. Everything that else was, that was already going on, you know, the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, racial inequality, mm-hmm. um, the environment. I mean, they're just, there's so much right now mm-hmm. that it's so easy to just like get sunk into depression or to want to stick your head in the sand so out. And, yeah, right. And to say, I'm, I'm just going to go under my covers until this year is over because I can't mm-hmm. process anything else. Um, But I just think regardless of how many big things are happening in our country, in our world, like there are still things that we can do in our real regular lives and in our families and our friendships, the people, even online, the people that we encounter, we can make some difference. It's it may not be huge, but we can do something. And that's what kind of keeps me going. And I think that can keep some more people going, too.
1: Well, this is a perfect segue because one of the things I wanted to offer (laughs) um, is running for office, running for local office. Um, So um, I ran for office in a a primary um, that got affected by COVID. Um, We are supposed to have the election in May, and we ended up having it in June. And um, I didn't win, um, but I got um, a a really good chunk of the vote, um, almost 44%. And, wow. um, I just, again, or ordinary person never, never ran before had really, really busy life. Um, but I, I think some of my piece right now in the middle of all these circumstances is I feel like, well, you know, me and my family, like we stepped up and, and we made, um, the politics healthier because we, um, we engaged in it and, um, mm-hmm. And this, I'm such a nerd. Thanks for thanks for your patience, guys, with my uh with my um uh nerdy um, metaphors, but um I I think about how a clam um cleans up the stream. And so the so the the organisms that um that, you know, natural, um, you know, clams and oysters have, it's, it's so powerful. It, it, it can clean the pollution from a stream. It, it makes, it increases, um, stream quality. And so, um, sometimes again, to fight that overwhelm, I, I just think of being that little clam and I'm just doing my little part to, um, purify the thing. (laughs) And and if we all get together, you know, like there's a, there's a big, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) but that was so running for office. Um, for me was stepping off the bench and going from somebody that um you know majored in in um in history and minored in government and was always interested in politics you know to actually um step out and run for office um it it, it seems scary at the time but it really builds on all of our our natural things as humans and and, and particularly um particularly women um and i just i just would love to share my experience and, and just encourage people, um, that, that I think if you're feeling overwhelmed about the big picture, um, working on, on local campaigns, um, um, for, for the next, you know, eight weeks, but, but, um, really moving forward is, is it, I don't know the, for, for me, that's what feels very grounding.
0: Right. So can you tell us about the office you saw at, And what made you decide to give it a shot and what the experience of running would like?
1: Yeah. So um, again, my um, town of um, Buchanan has 5,000 people in an entire county of 10,000. So it's very small. And there was an open position for city recorder. Um, And recorder is um, kind of like the secretary, you know, takes the notes, um, but also is the person that um, provides over all of the, um, different subcommittee meetings. So I wanted to run because I wanted to sit on the water board and the sewer board Mm -hmm. and and everything as an environmentalist, I knew that local decisions are really important. Um, -hmm. and so, yeah, I, I ran for office. I, it's a non, um, it's a non political, um, job, even though politics came into it. Um, and, I honestly, one of the reasons I ran was because this was the hundredth anniversary of women getting the right to vote, and it was mm. mostly all men. This was an uncontested race with a another guy um, who was appointed running, and I just, I just, I wanted to on on the hundredth anniversary of the rights of women to vote. I just wanted my husband and I to have somebody happy to, to write on the ballot, and so, um, so I just oh. jumped in. It was it was really cheap. I think it was. I don't even think it was fifty dollars to sign up, and um, I made a campaign. um, I made a campaign website, and I was talking about the power of community, um, and that um, you know, I was just like, you know, what is community? Is is community um, just a geographic place, or or is is community a you know group of people committed together? And so, um, yeah, that that was my platform.
0: Huh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, there are all sorts of these little positions that people don't think much about that really have an impact. So, um, you know, one thing I think, you know, our national politics gets so much attention. But the fact is, we're in a federal system. So as much power is
1: local. Yeah,
0: right. Right. As much power as possible goes to the state. And then even within the state, as much power as possible goes to the localities. So, so much more happens at the local level than people realize. I mean, most of the things that have the most immediate impact on your life, you know, your schools, your, um, um, roads, your, you know, water systems. I mean,
1: police and fire of those things, yeah, everything's local. Right. Yeah.
0: The decisions all happen at the local level and most of the funding happens at the local level. So I and, think- And if um, you want
1: to believe in sort of this states as laboratories, um, you know, you can do innovative things um, in a small town like Buchanan, and then that that might be, if it's successful, that could be replicated other places too. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And different communities have different needs and right. priorities. And, and different stresses. That, yeah. Yeah. So that's another thing. If um, National politics is stressing you out, maybe I
1: like that. Local think local situation, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, just like you're supposed to buy yeah. local, yeah, we're like we're like, yeah, vote vote local,
0: um and really too, sometimes it it really doesn't take much um doesn't take many people to sway uh, elected officials at the local level, mm-hmm. you know, like it, you know, you can have a situation where if you could get a hundred people, like <laughs> that could be enough to um to sway a local decision, you know. So. Right. Right. You're on a smaller scale, you can make a bigger difference.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um so I ran my whole campaign um like under under $2,000 and um one of the things that I did was I, I I had some really good friends from high school. I'm again i moved back home to a, a town I left at 18 to go to college. And there's a lot of people that leave West Virginia for work and mm-hmm. um still deeply care about the state. Um so I fundraised among my high school um friends who who left mm-hmm. the state and still um and, and still cared. And that was really interesting, actually. Um mm-hmm. You know connecting up and 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 talking with them, and then they sort of gave me um the encouragement then to go door to door and one of the things we, we had a really really um, um, serious fight in the in the town it was over lgbtq issues and it it was quite um quite, just quite personal and nasty. And I don't want to go too much into it, but just to understand the severity, like there's a criminal, um, there's a criminal, um, arrest made for slander on one of the political websites. I mean, it was just, it was yucky, but the crazy part was I was in the middle of running this like clean, positive, happy, uh, campaign. Um, and I made my yard signs had a cardinal on it and I was all about, you know, communication and access and, um, my uh, dorky, sunny, sunny personality. And so we put together care packages um, for people during COVID. Um, My son had gotten into, uh, he had a science experiment um, about feeding the birds. And we had found out that using that really good um, bird seed from the National um, Audubon Society just brought in just unbelievable amount of songbirds. Um, And so we put little packages and I had my little family of seven and my husband and we made an assembly line and we personally put together enough packets for 30% of our town, which I hand delivered. They were little lunch bags. And and so because it was hard to know how to, um, how to campaign safely during COVID. I mean, that was like a a Mm -hmm. wrench of things um and so it really the 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 fact that i was running a campaign that was um you know um positive and respectful and hopeful and 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 talking about us um you know being neighbors during covid um i mean i i just i feel like that was time well spent and I, my family got to see like that's that's how we respond to you know the the pandemic and how we re- respond to nastiness and and um, yeah, so again, I would just like to say, you know, you, um, there, there's this there's this power in stepping out, right, and and the Holy Spirit sort of catching your sails um, and and moving you forward, and and um, yeah, again, I just if if I could just tell people, I I, I understand so well um, the discouragement and the sadness, and um, you know, it just it. I don't know. I I I I feel complicated feelings being an American and an attorney right now. Um but I also mm-hmm. just really feel like um yeah, I don't know. hard you know hard to- hard time spring clarity. Hard time spring clarity. Yeah.
0: I I love what you said about um teaching your kids a lesson about this is how we're dealing with this hard right. time, you know. Right. Like wow, what an important lesson. Yeah. Yeah. And an important thing for them to remember, you
1: know. Like yeah,
0: remember,
1: yeah. And it when we- <laughs> Yeah, no they're all they're all like they, it's just so funny like that's totally normal for them now to run for office or to help other people <laughs> run for office. Yeah. And this is this is where you put your campaign signs and um Yeah. my my poor husband, you know, he was my treasure. We had to learn all the, you know, their strict fundraising rules and stuff. And um yeah, it did so so going from um observer to participant I think really um, empowered my family and i just i we we can 't have too many participants in this democracy right now we we yeah yeah
0: yeah i I grew up around politics because my grandfather was a local elected official uh-huh. and um so i you know remember going to parades and fundraisers and um electioneering on election day and uh-huh. um you know learning a lot about the process just by paying attention uh-huh. and um and about the pitfalls, to of politics. And I think it was such a valuable experience. And it's definitely had a big impact on my life and um, definitely has left me with a sense that um, pretty much anybody who wants to is able to become involved and to make a difference. Right. And anybody who has that in- inclination, I think, also has that responsibility. I like
1: that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, has the experience of running for office changed your life or outlook in any way?
1: Um it made me much stronger as a leader. Um I was I think if I made one mistake, I did not fundraise enough. I did I did not call up my friends. You know, I didn't call you. I didn't I didn't call people up and be like, <laughs> I'm running for office. I need 5 bucks and I I need you mm-hmm. to send me a card. And um mm-hmm. so I I was just shy about worrying about, I don't know, wasting people's money or, or that it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it wasn't this dream of running for politics. Wasn't a big deal. And I, I know now, um, you know, one of the things I am committed to is um a lot of people fail their first time running. So like that, I'm like, I'm running again, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. but I, first of all, the vulnerability and going door to door, um, it's, it's so different to ask for somebody mm-hmm. to vote for you. I mean, I, I joked that it was like, um, you know, I just told myself my, my town was so small. I'm like, this is like running for high school, you know, student council. But it wasn't because I was talking to people who didn't know me at all. And um, and almost all the people were really um, were really receptive. Like, like people love it when you visit their house, especially during COVID wearing a mask with your little, you know, cute daughter. And um, so I think I, I got to relate to people um, in a way that I, 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 yeah, it'll be interesting to hear what, how you feel with politics. There, there is something unique. It's, it's outside of my job, outside of my family, outside of um, school, outside of um, yeah, I'm trying to think anything volunteer. It's you're, you're in this joint space. Um, and it's, it's a little scary. Um, mm-hmm. but it's a little, it's a little beautiful. And, um, so I left feeling more, more serious about being a leader. And I think, you know, before I was kind of like, oh yeah, like I'm a, I'm a thoughtful person that has some ideas, or I, you know, I, I, I volunteer, but now I'm like, no, you know, this, this, um, this is the part that really choked people up, and I'm just going to share. Like for me, it's just, it's, it's very common, but I see leaders as being servants. I mean, I was taught that there's an inverted pyramid, mm-hmm. and the leader is the person that has the whole pyramid on their shoulders. It's very similar for Catholics as the Pope. Like the Pope is isn't he like the servants of the servants of God or something I mean it's this idea that um like le- yeah leaders serve and and we have responsibility to serve the people who have the hardest time getting to city hall and and speaking out and um that was a radical message for people in mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. town like they they had not um they had not they had they hadn't heard that and and so again it's hard for me because I didn't have, um, a platform. I mean, I'll probably get one for next election, you know, be a little more, um, savvy and wise. But, um, I think if you have this general desire for the common good and, and for, and and it's so, it's so natural for us as, as mothers and Catholics and women, and I'm sure other minorities, um, to just see people that, um, you know, people that could use some, some help.
0: Well, I was just thinking how important it is for people to hear the sentiments that you were describing regarding like a servant leader. Um, It, you know, it reminds me um, in the 2016 campaign uh, when, when Trump started to gain speed and there was so much talk about draining the swamp and Mm -hmm. how bad politicians were and all that I remember my grandfather saying, I wish somebody would just say that politicians aren't all bad. And, and you know what? Yeah, it does sound funny, but I think what he was trying to say is politics has such a reputation for nastiness. Mm -hmm. It is so easy to forget that there are people, and I think especially at the local level, who really are just trying to make a difference, mm-hmm. you know, who are really trying to serve their communities, improve their communities. Um, and we have just painted such a broad brush over politics as being so nasty that I think people expect politicians to be nasty.
1: Right, And it's
0: good to restore a sense of honor and dignity to the role that we've, I think, totally lost. Like, I remember... When I was a lobbyist in Annapolis, I would sometimes encounter people who knew my grandfather through politics, and um, he was a very conservative Republican, but I would have these Democratic politicians say to me, you know, I didn't agree with your grandfather on much, but I really liked him. You know, he he's a good guy, and he was so good to work with, and I really respect him. And, you know, these are people from different sides of the aisle from people who had very different different opinions and yet there was real respect and admiration and um affinity you know we've lost so much of that sense and i really think that we should strive to get it back i mean we need to be in a place where you can say i disagree with you but i really respect you and for people also to be earning that respect you know so i um that's really so, like, I love
1: that. I'd love you to just yeah, just expound on that because again, we're circling back to that theme of the Scalia Ginsburg friendship, right? I right. mean yeah, so so let's just yeah, let's dig into that. that's really meaty what what can what can yeah. we do for the next eight weeks that kind of yeah, increases respect and integrity and not not just have those yeah. be a buzzword, you know
0: yeah I mean, I do think it's hard in this moment i'm not gonna I'm not gonna deny that, but i think the I think the first thing to do is that we each of us need to recognize that we are people before we're partisans. I like you that, know we part- as individuals yeah and um even if we have political attachments, mm-hmm. we're people first mm-hmm. and um I think sometimes we think of it. Um, we think of it in the other direction, you know, we sort of, we sort of blame politics for being divided. Well, that all comes from individuals Mm -hmm. that all comes to some degree. It comes from the grassroots, you know, and we, we can affect what the general situation is by how we are acting in our own lives. So I think we need to recognize that we're people first and we need to recognize that our friends and neighbors are people first. And, um, and then, you know, when we're diving into politics, we just need to keep remembering that. I don't know. It's, I, it's not going to be quick. It's a long process, but I do think, um, as bad as things are right now, I think there will be a reaction to the current situation. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the pendulum swings, and right now, um, things are so bad. I think, I think it, I think before long, you will see more of a focus on people saying, okay, well, how can we ride this ship? How can we return to a situation of, of respect? I think, especially with younger people, you know, um, I think people are going to be looking for a, a, you know, a, a brighter, <laughs> a brighter future. Nobody wants to be stuck in an, in an, an ever downward spiraling <laughs> mess, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I just, I wanted to just um pull out some themes. So I, I love your people, people first, people before politics. And as you were talking to, I wrote down the word dissent. Um, I think that's a lesson from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life. Um, you know, the power of, uh, respectful principled dissent. Um, and, 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 um, yeah, I, I, again, I I think it's, it's the strange thing that we're in where there's so much talk and chatter, Um, but I, I feel like we're kind of morphing into, um, You know, two tribes and right, you know, you either want this appointment to happen, you know, before the election or after the election. And um, yeah, I don't
0: know. I just yeah, you know what? Okay, so I think there's a real confusion right now between trying to make a good argument Mm -hmm. and trying to persuade someone Mm -hmm. versus passing judgment on someone's worth or intelligence Mm -hmm. or motivation. Mm -hmm. So I think so much of that's confused right now. Mm -hmm. My ideal is people of varying opinions have a good hearted conversation, Mm -hmm. trying to persuade one another, Mm -hmm. understanding that they may not. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And having room
1: for that, right? Because we're not going to, yeah, right.
0: Right. But being respectful of one another and being, you know, open to the idea that we might be wrong, which Mm -hmm. is a topic Mm -hmm. I had a couple of episodes Mm ago, Mm -hmm. Um, but also willing to stand up for what I think is right, you Mm -hmm. know? So to have like a good-hearted exchange, I think that's the healthiest place for a society to be. Mm -hmm. I think right now you have um, so many people who think if someone disagrees with me, they're not just wrong. They're bad. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So they're they're not just wrong. They're bad. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I shouldn't have to listen to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's such a theme right now. Mm-hmm. And you also have this sense of how dare someone try to convince me. I mm-hmm. saw something recently on Facebook. Somebody had shared a meme that said something to the effect of, um, you have a right to your own opinion. You don't have a right to say mine is wrong, something like that. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, that's foolish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, mm-hmm. if, I think, um, if I think the sky is blue and you say it's red, well, then I have every right to convince you that you're wrong. I may not win, but I could try. You know, what's wrong with that? Um, if you don't want to agree with me, you don't have to, but what's the, what's the harm in trying to convince another person as long as it's done in a respectful way. So I think, you know, on the one hand, you have people who are saying, if you don't agree with me, you're bad. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you're having people say, don't you dare try to change my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, neither place gets us anywhere. (laughs) In a democracy. No. No. I mean, yeah, we're supposed to be working these things out. That's the whole point in a democracy. That's the whole point to politics is to try to interact with other people in a way where you can come to a common solution. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to work with people in order to do that. And if we're not working with people, we're totally
1: screwed. (laughs) Like that's that the bumper sticker. Twenty twenty. If we're not working, <laughs> people, we're totally screwed. There we go. <laughs> right. right yeah. So that's
0: where I am. I, I refuse to to be one of those people who is going to, uh, you know, say, oh well, you can have whatever opinion you want. I'm not going to do that because I think sometimes you're wrong, right. and I want to try to convince you that you're wrong. But that doesn't mean that I think you're evil. I think you can be a perfectly good person and still be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I can love you dearly and think you're wrong. And, you know, that's the way I think we should be going about life. (laughs) You know, distinguishing between our affection for someone and whether we think they're making a well-reasoned argument, you know? (laughs)
1: And I I just to go with that, um, as a payer, again, um, thinking about dissent and Ruth Bader Ginsburg with her her very um, noticeable collar, she had a certain collar that she would wear on yeah. the court, um, yeah. that it's important to feel comfortable um, dissenting um, from yeah. opinions of your friends, from, right. um, you know, it, it, that's yeah people before um politics and and comfortable being um alone to censor um yeah. there's integrity in that and um I, I think the that kind of risk of um of ridicule of failure i I just you know when I ran for office i I was so scared um the day before the election because you know there's no polling or anything in a local election you' mm-hmm. you're just going yeah. by like you know yeah, yeah. and and I thought, oh my gosh, if I don't win, it's like, if I get five votes, you know, my, my husband and my parents, um, I'm like, it's (laughs) published in the newspaper. Like everyone knows how I did, you know, and it, it was just, you know, if I failed at the bar exam or, you know, anything else, like it's not public and there it is, you know, front page on the paper. Um, but I, again, you know, the, the embracing, um, Failure, embracing dissent, embracing ridicule. we are not going to advance as a society with um, with groupthink. It's just—it's you know—that's right. not um, that—that's not that's not how we make um, that's not how we make leaps forward. So, anyways, right. Julie, this was just really great. Yeah, that was a really great.
0: Yeah, thank you, talk. thank you, Abigail. There was sure. there ended up being a lot more to this conversation than I expected. So. <laughs> <Good>. Yeah. <laughs> Um. So I just wanted to say, Abigail, you know, you go about living your life and you post things online and you have conversations and you engage with people and you don't always realize the impact that you're having. But you are someone who really has had an impact on me and oh, has given you. me a lot of inspiration and have and like prodding and pushing. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: let go the plan. Right,
0: just do it. Just right. do it, and I really, oh. I really appreciate it. And you probably wouldn't know how often I think of you, um, oh. and um, and that you, you you help me move forward. So I appreciate that, oh, and I appreciate oh, good, really you taking good. this time to talk to me. And I cannot wait to see what you do next because yes, every be time crazy. I turn around, you <laughs> are doing another else. thing that amazes me. <laughs> So I want to see your next campaign in action. All right. All right. I will. Broadcast. That's good.
1: That's good. I will, I, will, I will. Just
0: do it. That's right.
1: That's right. Just do it.
0: Good. Okay. Well, thank you, Abigail. Oh, I
1: well, really thank appreciate you. it. Sure. Sure. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Abigail Benjamin. You can find a link to Abigail's website in the show notes. Next week's episode will feature a conversation with my friend Julia Harrell. Julia is an author, a freelance writer, and a stay-at-home mom to four young kids. She is a former teacher who loves talking about schools, education, and especially literature and the great books. Next week, we'll touch on all of those things in our most freewheeling podcast conversation yet. In it, Julia and I discuss some of the biggest challenges of our time, and then we dream about what a better world From democracy to education to the news media, Julia and I spend some time following Vaclav Havel's advice. We must not be afraid of dreaming the seemingly impossible if we want the seemingly impossible to become a reality. Check out episode one for some context to that quote. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it and that if you like it, You'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast.
1: This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.